standard issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here. Welcome to Sunday Chops. This week's Chops is an interview with MP Caroline Flint. Mickey and I went into the Commons to meet her and talk to her about 21 years in politics, about being one of the original Blair Babes, about how women are treated in politics and if that's changed. We talked about Mo Molum. We talked about Theresa May. We talked about Brexit. We covered a lot of stuff. So that's here now for you to enjoy. Just a quick note, the last question that we asked Caroline was a question I asked her about being the child of an alcoholic. And you will find the answer to that and information about NACOA, the charity for the children of alcoholics, in our main podcast, which was released on Wednesday. And that is well worth a listen. We conducted this interview in April. So it was before the death of Tessa Jowell, which will explain to you if you were wondering why we didn't ask Caroline for a tribute. Hannah and I are at Westminster with Caroline Flint, Labour MP for Don Valley. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Hannah. Hello. (laughs) 21 years. Oh, my God. How are you feeling? Tired? Uh, A little bit jaded on certain days. Honestly, when we had the 20th anniversary from 97, it felt like the time had gone so quickly and it really has and I can remember when I was first elected Janet Anderson who was an MP she'd come in before but she said you think you've got all the time in the world but it's amazing how quickly it will go and it and it does feel that although with my younger colleagues coming in you know I do feel like the ancient sage woman of wisdom it's been an incredible journey and and I have to say I mean, looking back on it, and I'm sure this is for everybody in, in whatever walk of life they're in, you do learn things along the way. And I wish I'd been more savvy about certain things when I first arrived, as, as I am now. <laughs> what would you tell your Blair babe self? Oh, gosh, that you think you're in a family, but everyone's out for themselves, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Julia Gillard actually became the Prime Minister in Australia. She was born the same year as me, 1961, and comes from a working-class family in, I think, Barry in Wales. I wrote an article about how could this working-class woman from Wales end up as the Prime Minister of Australia, and the Labour Party still hasn't got its first yeah. woman leader. Obviously, it was Harriet was acting and Margaret Beckett yeah. was acting, but proper, if you know what I mean. And I think I sort of, in the articles, described that the Parliamentary Labour Party was much more of a, a sort of medieval structure than I really thought. So, you know, when you arrive, obviously, Tony Blair was the Prime Minister, leader of our party. It's, they're like the king. And then you have the barons, the big beasts, you know, John Prescott at the time, Robin Cook and Gordon Brown. And I don't think I really appreciated really what you needed to do was attach yourself to a big beast because then they would have their knights and their squires and the serfs as well along the way. And then hopefully as they rose up the ladder, you would rise up too. I'm sort of obviously sketching something up that's not the total reality, but it was a bit like that. I really don't think I realised how it had that sort of, you like, sort of rather feudal system that was operating. And probably I should have sucked up to a few more people. I might have got promoted to be a minister earlier, but there we go. Can I ask about those words, Blair, babes, mm. how that felt? Was it something you just thought, I'm just going to get my head down and carry on working, it doesn't mm, matter, but mm, they are kind of vaguely mm, sexualising mm, us all? Yeah. I joined the Labour Party in 1979 and had had 18 years of us being out of power. And I have to say, when I joined the Labour Party in 1979, I never thought I'd be an MP in a million years. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people at the, you know, the age of six as I'm, 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 my plan is to be the Prime Minister. And I think, you know, those 18 years of us being out of power and when we came in, I think I, like so many of my colleagues, 
male and female, we were so made up about winning that election after all those years out of it. Things can only get better. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, they did get better in a lot of areas. There's no doubt about that. I mean, we actually even ended up challenging how the Tory party saw things. It's amazing today that the Tories are all signed up for things like the national minimum wage, gay rights, so on. But I have to, that was not the case back in uh, 97. And the other thing, of course, we had 101 Labour women MPs, the largest number ever coming into Parliament, uh, more than all the other parties together. That's still the case to, today, even though all the parties have up their game, maybe not the Liberals. And I suppose, you know, just thought, well, they're going to do something to try and knock us. And therefore, I suppose, when we had the photograph with all the, the women and with Tony Blair, the Blair base, I suppose, came out of that. But whether, you know, it was Tony or Antonia, I think we were just proud to stand with the Prime Minister of the country because it was a Labour Prime Minister, and we were part of that. And our party did more than anyone else to try and challenge the way in which candidates were selected to give women a fair shout. I mean, people forget, I think, that there was an actually legal challenge to the way we had women-only shortlists uh, that went to court. And effectively, we had to change the law to make sure the political parties were allowed to use positive action in the way they uh, select their candidates. And I, and I do remember as a minister going to Cabinet, actually, week, the weekly Cabinet meeting, and walk down Downing Street into, into the building. And the Daily Mail did this sort of thing, Caroline's catwalk. And it was like... There were these photographs of, over a period of like, whatever, seven weeks or thing, of me literally walking down this, this street and then taking a photo as I went along. And, and yeah, yeah, I hold my hand up. I had a different outfit, but, you know, it was over seven or eight weeks, sort of thing like this. You know, the idea I was going to be going around or I'd just say every single Tuesday, I'm going to wear exactly the same Where trousers or whatever. I know, I know, it's really, really <laughs> bad. But then I just thought, oh God. And, and I had, myself and some other women got a lot of that going on. But again, I recall, and this is like, there's no such thing as an original idea. Some of the women who served in David Cameron's cabinet, I think the male did exactly the same thing. I think they spread it around, but it was the same thing these women walking down the street as if yeah. it's their catwalk. Oh, well, see, I get so it's like so it's, yeah, so, it's so it all, yeah. so it all comes back again. Unfortunately, there's sometimes these ways to say undermine women or focus on that sort of thing rather than the other things that we contribute to and change and make a difference on. We still need to strive to fight against that sort of perceptions well, of it's, us. It's interesting, isn't it? Because <laughs> almost at exactly the same time that that happened, the Daily Mail really had a pop up moment. Yeah, and how moment had let herself go at the time because unbeknown to them she was battling cancer. I know. Momolan <laughs> has somewhat disappeared from history in the last few weeks it appears. Can I can I ask you your memories of her? Warm, humorous, very much her own person. Absolutely dedicated to the Labour Party, but also, you know, dedicated to the sort of things that she was asked to be responsible for. And it and it is a fact that in the last week with a sort of obviously anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement Mo has not appeared. And she was absolutely in there, a pivotal role in bringing people together. Part of Mo's power, I suppose, but also undoubtedly her charm, was her ability to sometimes talk through the bullshit and get knock a few heads together to speak to each other. I mean, she wasn't a stand-on-ceremony sort of person. It's interesting, is in politics and other walks of life, certain things that people value you know, which university you went to, who you know, and all this sort of thing. But sometimes I think those those other skills of being able to maybe talk in a slightly different way prick the bubble of pomposity, yeah. I think, as well. 
those are really good qualities when you're dealing with some of these situations where you're trying to get very disparate people to try and get together and talk. And, and I think that was one of her real skills in that. And also the other thing I think, Mo, uh, in terms of Northern Ireland, from what I know, you know, talking to people who, who knew, worked with her at the time and knew her better than me, is she had this public warmth, which was so endearing as well. Because the other thing about the Good Friday Agreement is, of course, was trying to bring the politicians yeah. together. But it was also about the people outside of the, the formality of those discussions. And I think, again, with Mo, and Tony was good at some of that as well, but Mo was such a, an anchor to the reality of the real world and where real people were outside of the bubble of the negotiations, which I think was crucial for those talks actually being able to continue and become a success. Mm. So she should never be forgotten about what she contributed at all. She sounds like an ideal party leader. <laughs> you touched on it earlier. There hasn't been one in the Labour Party. There's not been a woman leader. Why no. do you think that is? I think part of it is is that at the top of our party, and by that I don't just mean politicians, but I think advisors and if you like the circus around people, it is still overwhelmingly dominated by men. Mm-hmm. That's undoubtedly the case. And actually, again, looking back over 21 years now, I can see more clearly some things than I did when I first came in. And that is how we have processes to elect leaders, but actually quite often it's informed by who's talking up people. I mean, that's been slightly different in more recent times because obviously we've had a good different type of selection contest. But every time there's a, g- a general election, and it's not just in the Labour Party, but we should talk about the Labour Party because, let's be honest about it, the Tories are now on their second woman Prime Minister. But people say, oh watch out for this person. They're going to be the next leader in this. And the truth of it is, over 21 years, I can now see clearly that those years are littered with people who were going to be the next leader of the Labour Party and and they didn't become it. But they were all pretty much exclusively male. There's very few women who've ever been talked about being a leader. Yvette Cooper is one. Harriet probably a bit, but even then with Harriet, not so much. There's definitely a male bias in this. And part of it is, I think, in politics, is about profile and how you are reported on and commented on. And that's why, interestingly, whenever they ask the public about, well, who do you think, if you're overwhelmingly given male lists, then mm, you don't need many brain cells to put that together. Mm -hmm. If you're given a list of all men and maybe one woman on it, and then there's a poll that says, this poll has showed that 36% think Chukramuna should be leader or... But it's from a list that they've put in front of people. And then the other thing, as we all know, you know, in a good way, most people aren't spending their whole time talking about politics. And actually, sometimes it's quite hard for the public to recognise anyone because um, they're getting on with other things in life. But in the Labour Party as well, I think there is something else. Obviously, it, the processes have changed. But it seems in the Labour Party, and again, it's, it, it's a good thing, but it has its consequences. Often people who want to be leaders in our party end up having to please lots of different groups mm-hmm. all the time so there's the members there's the trade unions there's the socialist societies and then there's the different groups within that that as well so we have various ethnic minority groups there's the women's groups the lgbt groups da, 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 da. so actually you end up having to try and please everybody in a different way and that's not a bad thing i'm not trying to suggest that's a bad thing But I think actually in that sense, it's quite difficult to then, I think, stand out as a bit different because the whole time you're just trying to please everybody all the time. Presumably that's maybe And for women, I think it's harder. With the power of social media. But also it creates a sort of dynamic, a conformity almost. And I think actually, to be honest, that was a bit of the sort of thing when we had the 
the selection after the 2015 election. Some of the things was, was about candidates for, for leader at the time. Obviously, we had Andy and Yvette and, and, and Liz and Jeremy. People were saying, well, are they all a bit too much alike, some of them? Obviously not Jeremy, yeah. but are they all a bit too much alike? Yeah. And actually, a comment, I think, at the Hustings was that whatever people thinks is maybe they were all a little bit a bit too trying to please everybody whereas it came across a bit and I was obviously standing for deputy leader so we sometimes saw the tail end of those hustings like they'd have their hustings and everyone would go away and we'd be like no we don't disagree with that but and Jeremy seemed a bit different from all of that mm-hmm. and I having watched some of those hustings I could see that and I think Part of the reason for that was about this sort of process to go through. You have to come in, and I think this works against women as well, and I think it's probably the same in other walks of life as well, business and elsewhere, is it's almost like you've come in, even before you've done your first speech, if you think you want to be a leader, you've got to start thinking about it now and planning now. And, you know, as I say, galvanising your troops and they become your army yeah. and all this. Sort of thing. And then the other thing is money's involved in some of these things as well. To run a campaign, I think the amount of money in more recent times not just in 2015 2017 but even in back in 2010 the amount of money that the candidates are having to raise to run their campaigns i think is is quite frightening for people i mean i know that um in in 2010 apart from you know obviously there's lots of rules around this there has to be uh, i think there are a number of people who personally got into debt i think harriet's talked about it when she was running for deputy leader i know hazel who i supported for deputy uh, leader and I think, you know, there's lots of these barriers. But we do have to question this in our party because it's not a good look <laughs> having, having had two Tory women and prime ministers. Well, do you think that Theresa May <coughs> and Margaret Thatcher, neither of which are ones for sending the lift back <coughs> down for other no. women, have made it harder? Made it harder for... For people to, for women to think, oh, I can go for this. I think with mm. men, mm. men can make an absolute shit show or something and it isn't yeah. all men are like that but yeah. a woman does stuff that people don't like and they're like well we gave a woman a chance yeah it's interesting since Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister since she's died there's been various plays haven't there about there's a great one with um, oh what's the actress's name Helen Mirren was in one of there was the Helen Mirren one oh, oh Andrea Rice sorry Andrea I got your yeah. name right yeah that was, that was a really interesting one about how she went about getting selected yeah. wasn't and, and actually what was quite interesting she was in the context of that drama, okay, was it, you could see how she was battling through some of the ideas about her and about a woman going for a seat. It seemed like Dennis was incredibly supportive to her. I mean, obviously, he obviously was a self-made man and had some money and she could go and do what she needed to do and that wasn't his thing. And that's an interesting thing as well, isn't it, about power couples, MPs how many you know male MPs there and their wives aren't that interested in it but you know often sometimes you found that you know sometimes with women MPs the man's interested too I think Tony and Cherie had this deal didn't they whoever got selected or elected first the other one wouldn't be an MP which seemed quite a good idea actually well yeah no exactly but I think with Margaret Thatcher the clearly having learned a bit much she obviously went through and on one level I sort of like respect for that but the problem is is that when she did come in, put aside all the other things that she did across her government in terms of policies which I really you know, disagree with, it was almost like that Queen Bee thing, wasn't it? I've done it, and if I've cracked it, and I was tough, and I had to put up with this... Well, then everyone else should go through that well, process that is the as well. Tory way, and, and, isn't and, it? it's, and it is, and it, you know, it is. But also, it's like it's such a, a lie in a way because the idea that men don't help each other up the ladder 
They yeah. do. The biggest thing that we all know about is those male networks. Oh, boys. They totally, them. you know, whatever it is, they totally speak to each other. They reinforce each other's ideas. That goes on all the time to help people along. Whereas it's like women have to almost constantly prove themselves time and time again. So on one level, certainly not at the time, I'm glad we've had a woman prime minister in this country just to show that actually women can, well, whatever I agree, a policy. And now we've got another one. But it's actually what you do with that uh, at power as well. Because I think men do this for other men all the time. So I would want women yeah. to recognise that and do that to help you know, their sisters as well. But I can't help but feel that Theresa May is Prime Minister because nobody else really wanted to be the Prime Minister. I think there is something mm, in that, Hannah, absolutely. I do. It's because the only one I people mean, could all get behind yeah. at that time. Who'd have thought it, though? Cameron wins the 2015 general election, calls the referendum, thinks absolutely Spastic. that that's <laughs> yeah. going to happen, yeah. him and Osborne, and then the referendum obviously leave win, and he literally... Walks away. Runs. He leaves. You know, he leaves. <laughs> yeah. You know, he gets his coat and he leaves. You know, and suddenly they're all in turmoil yeah. about the whole thing. I mean, although there were some obviously some other runner riders, we had we ended up with Teresa and An- Andrea, Andrew, and then wow. then we had the massive mother yeah. thing going on. And let's be honest, it ended up as a coronation. She was a, basically yeah. the last woman standing. Really, I don't think. Theresa May in her time as uh, Home Secretary was particularly talked up. She wasn't one less than one of those. But she was, for whatever these things are worth, she was, I think, the longest Home Secretary in history. She was still there. She was solid. She was solid. But it was a, a bit, bit of a, a bit of, yeah. job, the Home Office, wasn't it? It was a job that lots of people went, oh, I don't know if I really want that. It's, I love the Home Office. I think it's a fascinating... I, my first ministerial job was in the Home Office. I, there was a period in which everyone was just... Lasting. Scared of it. Yeah, and, you and don't, people weren't lasting very oh, long. No. You're right, and I think there's probably a number of things that Teresa dodged certain issues over yeah. the years. No, that she's really? in there. I'm afraid so. I mean, oh, I mean, you know, let's be honest about it. Some of the stuff we're facing around our building up our police forces, I mean, in my area, like probably other areas in the country, we actually really built up our neighbourhood policing teams. It's not just about police numbers. But actually, if you don't have people, not just police officers, community support officers, working with youth clubs and things like this, if they're not there in communities, they're not able to see what's going on, what's happening with gangs, what's happening with antisocial behaviour, and building up those relationships. There's never a perfect situation, but I think I'm really proud of what we did under Labour to actually build that resource up. And I have definitely seen, since 2010 what happened was they didn't quite get rid of the neighbourhood teams but they had to cover the same amount of people had to cover a bigger area so you could tick the box that you had yeah. one but that actually it wasn't that it, was, it wasn't real yeah, yeah exactly do more with exactly less. and she, I was on her watch I mean the immigration stuff at the moment with the wind rush, this is you know oh, this is all on her Jesus. watch but I mean I sort of feel like should we have been doing more? She would have been on it more. But she got away with, I think, certain things and wasn't tested. And as I say, you know, she managed to... People probably said, oh, she managed to survive six years as that. Yeah. There must be something to it. And then, you know, obviously different to that, I suppose, on one level, that the sort of Cameron style, two boys from public school. She was the vicar's daughter. It was a, like, say, we need an antidote to some of the smoothness that's gone on. and then. But you can, you can plan for everything and then it still doesn't work out, as we know. It kind as of feels know. like she's a bit bomb-proof now because no one else wants that job right now, I don't think. Putting aside some major things that she's having to deal with at the moment, which clearly the government has been, if not 
completely had their eye off the ball or they've made the wrong decisions. There are some aspects of her role at the moment which I think she's strengthened. But I think also part of this is is that I don't think there's anyone in the Conservative Party. I mean, you hear about challenges and things like this. I don't think there's anyone this side of next March when we're meant to be leaving the European Union want to touch it with a barge pole, quite frankly. Whatever else happens, they'll leave that and probably leave it through the transition. And then the Tory party, like the Tory, unless she is really pulls out of the bag um, some, you know, major... Um, miracles. I think she will looking for her legacy to be that she got us through to leave the transition, and they will they will pick someone else. The Tory Party. I always, I mean, apart from the twenty seventeen election, which was the worst general election I've ever seen the Tory Party ever run ever. I mean, they're pretty cutthroat when it comes to sort of we've got to do everything. what we, we what we need. Well, on everything, but when it comes to power, what they need to do. I mean, they're not sentimental about things. So there's no one rushing around saying me, me, me. Caroline Flint reveals Tory's not one for feelings. Shocker. <laughs> I know. I know. Bless them. what the vibe is in parliament at the moment because obviously it's a hung parliament and Mm. i think we just keep forgetting because there's just like boom after boom after Mm. boom Mm. how is that for ministers and for what is really i mean apart from obviously brexit train trundles on and every day is a brexit day and something to do with that i mean there's hardly anything really happening in terms of what i would say policies to get your teeth into can you get stuff through a little bit more easily well potentially well it's never going to be a a, a clean win if you like part of it is the pressure you put on government to change their legislation before there's an actual real vote on anything Mm -hmm. clearly there have been a, a few areas where obviously we've been doing our part on the labor benches but discontent on our own benches has led to some changes on some of the issues. So there's been stuff on universal credit. Obviously, we've got this, there's this Windrush thing going at the moment. But there have been some other areas where there's been a pushback from all sides of the House. And rather than sort of uh, leave it to the face-losing vote, they then try to tinker it and change it so that they can then say it's still our bill. There's a lot of horse trading going on. And, and a lot of trying to manage and damage limitation. I mean, the other thing as well, of course, with the DUP, and it's, interest, it's interesting in itself, because actually, you know, the, <laughs> the laughing, <laughs> laughing. Yeah, great, great. But listen, you know, the thing about the thing, but the interesting thing, you know, I think it's fair to say about the DUP, they have very, obviously, very strong reviews around, um, you know, Northern Ireland and, and the Assembly, what have you, but on some policy areas, because... You know, it seems to me they're pretty much quite a working-class party. When it comes to some of the things like I've had on sort of the energy companies and what they've been up to, or some other matters where they think, you know, this this affects our, our supporters, who are not the sort of the aristocracy. They're not Tory in yeah. the same... And so it's, it's much more complex. That's why on certainly some of the issues that they've raised concerns on around what's been happening with universal credit, what, you know, these sort of the areas have not been devolved they're quite strong on that and they're saying well yeah hang on that affects our that affects the people we represent because they rely on those things so they're not the same if you like uh, in, in maybe some people might think they have some particular concerns that don't sit 
easily maybe with where conservative policy might be going on welfare or some of these other areas so that again creates its own challenges absolutely for the Tories as well but the the thing about hung parliaments is 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 that you don't know ministers have to work hard to convince everyone but certainly convince their keep it well their own side if they can't convince their own side they're on they've got a problem they've got a massive problem can I ask you since we're on this given that there are a number of Tories, mm. Ken Clark, Anna Subri, lots of people speaking yeah. sort of out against their party. What do you think of this idea of a new centre party that everybody keeps talking about, that there's money being cast around for a collection? Do you think that's the way forward or do you think that's a massive mistake? Well, it's not, I don't think it's the way forward. I, I would certainly never be interested in joining uh, some new party. I think on some things across politics, you can have cross-party campaigns. There's no doubt about it. You know, I actually managed to amend a government finance bill a year or so ago on tax transparency, on, and, and this was about the big companies like Google and others having to show where they operate, what tax they pay, what their profits are in every country they operate in. And that well was done. A, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was a little, that was a little win. That was a little win. It's called Public Country by Country Reporting. It's a snappy title, I know. <laughs> uh, but basically, basically, what it's meant to do is they already provide this information to the tax authority, HMRC. But I feel, and a number of others, that if we had this publicly then it means that it should be a good thing if they're doing the right thing. But the other thing, it's good for us, for people here, to know that they're paying the right amount of tax. But the other big issue is, is for all those countries they operate in, particularly poorer countries around the world, in developing countries that get aid, but they're not getting the tax. And so actually, that I'm on the Public Accounts Committee, we did some work on this area, and I had full support pretty much from uh, my colleagues across the party divide on that committee, across Parliament as well, and and we managed to get the government to... They didn't totally accept to put in action, but they did accept that they'd have an enabling power to do it in the future, so it's on the statute books, so we don't have to go back. So that's all good, you can do all that. But there is a thing about, for me, you know, the Labour Party, its history, its values, where it's come from, that obviously you know, we're very different, the world we live in today, from 100-odd years ago when we were first formed... But I do think we have a a culture and a story that is very different to the Conservative Party. And that's the sort of foundations on what you, what, you know, what your politics are based on. This idea that new parties, I mean, lots of people come up, the SDP, look at the SDP, what happened? Basically ended up anchoring themselves to the Liberal Party and becoming the Lib Dems. I mean, I don't see it, to be honest, because how do you sustain what could be on one level, a group of people who have a common interest on a couple of issues... But actually, maybe their values and how they see the role of government isn't that coherent. And so I don't see it. But I mean, I think these things bubble up in politics all the time. I think it takes more than just someone with a deep pockets to just form a party, I think. Well, thank goodness. That's, I'm not really, that's not really my, my thing, really, at all. But the other thing, obviously, on, on the Brexit is that I campaigned for Remain in my seat. In fact, the whole of Doncaster, it was overwhelmingly people voting leave. I can tell you when people, when I hear some of my Remain friends, and they are friends, talking about courage and what have you, actually to try and support that campaign to go out on the doorsteps was tough. And I just sort of feel that we got into this position. David Cameron, as I said, called the referendum and then ran away afterwards. We need to find a way to see our way through this. And I personally don't believe that trying to sort of seek to overturn the decision is the right way. And I expect other people who disagree with that. But you can't have a referendum 
and and say before it, I'll honour the result. And after it, say, I honour the result. If you then spend your whole time, say, trying to turn it over and turn it around. And that's difficult. And so I feel like sometimes we're caught between very hardline Remainers, hardline Brexiteers, very polarised. I think most of the country, to be honest, want us to try and work through this. And there's going to have to be compromise at the end of the day on all sides. And down the road, who knows what we will think. We might change our mind in 10, 15, 20 years. But I really do not like, from some Remain voices, the constant attacks on people who voted Leave. Because there's lots of different reasons why they voted that way. And they're not all flag-waving for Farage or are racist, as some people have suggested. It's a lot more complicated than that. What do you think about the people's vote, then? Well, again, I think the people's vote is basically another thing to try and overturn the referendum. And I think part of the problem with our relationship with Europe is that for quite a long time, the political establishment across parties, whilst they were obviously engaged in the European Union... It always seemed to be when everything went wrong in Europe, (laughs) or went wrong, we blame the European Union. When anything that had a a European colour to it went right, we were saying, oh, we did it. It was just us. We we don't need the Commission. We don't need any of these other people. And I think that we didn't do enough to really engage the public. And when I talk about the public, I mean, there's lots of people engaged in all things EU, but it was usually the people who were often paid to be engaged in that, proud and the good, institutions and not people. And I think one thing I've learned, you know, over many years, even before I was an MP, trying to have a conversation with people, but also trying to get information to people I mean and this is before we had even social media it's really hard you cannot assume that people have heard about that now we have a situation today where obviously the beast that is social media I mean there's all sorts of things going out there which people say that is the God's honest truth and actually it's not really true I mean that's made it even more complicated I think sometimes to get information out there that people can make a judgment on but I'm afraid on the remain side and I've been saying this for some years before even before the referendum it's not all about men in suits with purple rosettes UKIP there's a view out there that really don't aren't feeling it yeah. on the EU when they hear captains of industry senior politicians talking about the net benefits of being in the EU well most people well, what the hell does that mean to anybody but the net benefits is looking at overall and of course there are net benefits from this but it wasn't shared equally across the country. People were seeing a huge amount of money spent on Crossrail or whatever it is, and even stuff that's not even related to you. And they can't, you know, they can't get a bus after 8.30 at night. They're not really feeling it, particularly, not exclusively, but in a lot of our post-industrial towns, the importance of actually listening to people's concerns and then engaging with it, I don't think they did. So on one level, the very same people who I think were quite elitist about how they operated as part of the EU and took for granted that we would just win that referendum now they turn around and say we want the people's vote I mean it's quite I think it's just quite an interesting juxtaposition of attitudes on this thank you so much for talking to us goodness we did talk didn't we I could still stay here and ask you loads more questions as well that'd be great well you're welcome to come back anytime or I'll come and see you where you are and it'll be a pleasure you may live to regret that (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much for listening. We've got loads of these Sunday shops, so there's absolutely no reason for you to ever have to think about doing the Sunday washing up or certainly having to do it in silence 
or if you're stuck in a long car journey hopefully we've got some things that will see you through that there's still time to buy tickets for our latest in conversation events it's our last event in london for a while it's on monday the 28th of may which which is tomorrow if you're listening to this on sunday or the past if you're listening to it after monday um we've got marion keys Gemma whelan katie tunstall and vicky mcclure so if you go to sarah's site to look for that www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue thanks for listening until next week <laughs>